If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. There have been some pretty stunning images of protests coming out of the country of Iran the last few weeks. We wanted to learn more about what is happening there, what's behind these protests and these images, and what does it all mean? For this conversation, we've caught up with Dr. Sean Yam. He is an associate professor of political science at Temple University. We're seeing some startling pictures coming out of Iran of a public that is you know, protesting, not things we're not used to seeing in Iran. What's the origin? What kind of lit the lit the fuse here? It's a great question. I think there is a long-term origin and there's a short-term spark. The short-term spark happened after popular outrage regarding the death of a 22-year-old Iranian woman, an Iranian Kurdish woman named Mahsa Amini, who was taken into custody by the Iranian police that a subsection of the Iranian police in particular, often transliterated as the uh, the guidance police or the moral guidance patrol. The charge was she was improperly wearing uh, a head covering, which is mandated by the government, given their very socially conservative uh, rules uh, in the country. And she was beaten and because she had violated the hijab rule, the, the rule that she had to cover a particular part of her body in modesty as a woman in the Islamic Republic. She was beaten very badly. Uh, She later died. And when news of her death spread out among the public, uh, protests began in spontaneous grassroots fashion. And they've spread like a conflagration across major urban centers and public spaces. And it's now become a veritable uh, national movement, one that has captured global headlines and one which is seriously threatening the political authority of the Iranian regime and state. That's the short-term, uh, that's the short-term trigger. Uh, the longer-term cause or origin is that for some time now, uh, for decades, and in particular over the past decade, there's been a growing social disconnect between Iranian society and the Iranian state. Iranian society is young. It doesn't conform to the very conservative Uh, socially restrictive rules and values held by the ruling elite. It's a public that has mounted repeated cyclical national protests over the last decade against various quality of life issues, political reform issues, or economic concerns. We saw this in 2008 and 2009. We've seen this almost every other year over the past decade. So the current movement regarding Mahsa Amini And the hijab rule in Iran is one that falls in line with that pattern of disconnected state imposing rules over an unhappy society that no longer believes that its rule makers, its government officials, understand what ordinary Iranian youths and citizens need or desire in their everyday life. We've seen this going back years now. Had any of the prior uprisings? move the needle at all with any even minor changes? The fact that it keeps happening kind of tells me no, but had there been any response by the government to these uprisings in the past? I would like to answer the question with uh, a yes, 
or at least uh, maybe. But the unfortunate reality is that the predominant response of the Iranian regime and state to every past popular explosion of public unrest, mass discontent, or concerted protests has been repressive and coercive crushing of protests. There have been very few times over the mass movements and protests, organized protests, which have rocked Iran for much of the past decade on a cyclical, about every other year fashion. There have been very few occasions where one can point, point to a protest and show that the Iranian regime and state was actually making a concession to street protesters. The fundamental problem, and this, I think, began with the so-called Green Revolution, which was a mass unarmed uprising for democracy after presidential elections were held and contested in 2009, and by all evidentiary accounts, uh, rigged in favor of a very conservative candidate. Uh, We called those protests back in 2009, which involved millions of people, uh, far bigger than what's happening now at this point in time, the Green Revolution. Since the Green Revolution, the problem has been that the Iranian regime and state looks at protests not as an entree to bargain, not as an opportunity to dialogue with unhappy elements of society, but rather as a securitized threat to its ironclad rule and control over Iran. And it treats those threats uh, with fairly brutal coercive responses, typically mass arrests, targeted physical punishments of protest leaders, the pursuit or assault of known dissidents and activists, and the fanning out in many public spaces of riot police, uh, of paramilitaries, the besiege, which is a the largest paramilitary force in Iran and one which is wedded to the Iranian regime and state. These kinds of strategies essentially convert public spaces from spaces of civic occupation into militarized zones of state control. That is the mentality of the Iranian regime and state. That's why we haven't seen a lot of movement or concession after major protests during this generation, a generation whose lives have been punctuated by the act of protest, Iran's Generation Z. This is why we don't see the regime and state moving to make any to, to make any meaningful concession or to really move the needle, as you say, economically or politically in response to every major uprising or insurrection. I saw a headline today how a leader, I don't know if it was a supreme leader or the president, but blamed the U.S. and Israel for the unrest. And it it just seemed to me almost reflexive that there has to be somebody to blame. Well, it's got to be Israel. It's got to be the U S like it do people in Iran. Is there a segment of the population that buys into that, that this is somehow some kind of conspiracy that, you know, our longtime enemies are, are plotting against us again, or does that, is it almost just the playbook the government always uses in situations like this? It's both. Uh, It's more the playbook, uh, but it would also be facetious for us in the West to assume that Iran's a monolith. I mean, uh, Iran's a huge country. Geographically, it's one of the biggest countries in the Middle East. And demographically, it's got about 84, 85 million people. I mean, so by all accounts, by 
standards outside the the sort of the, the top five or ten biggest countries in the world. This is a pretty deep society uh, sprawled across a fairly large territory, and so in that society and in that territory live many different social forces and a society that has undergone a lot of generational churning over the last twenty or thirty years. It's the the, the Iran today is an Iran that is one of the youngest but best educated Irans in its history. That's what the demographic trends and that's what the demographic pyramid tells us. But at the same time, it's also an Iran where young people have a lot of different opinions. It's an Iran where pluralism flourishes. And part of pluralism, for better or for worse, means that while a good part of Iranian society, I would think maybe even the majority, particularly its youth, believe that the socially conservative regime and state is out of touch, that restrictive rules like the requirement to wear the hijab do not suit the lifestyles of ordinary people anymore. Outside of maybe that silent majority, well, silent no more, certainly, still exists strong social columns in society, minority groups and minorities. I don't mean this in the Western ethnic or racial sense. I mean this in the political sense various groups of people who do believe in the propaganda that the Iranian officials still distribute. They do believe that this is all the cause of the West. This is a provocation of Israel or of some conspiratorial global Jewish movement or of subversive Arab revolutionaries launched from states like Saudi Arabia. I believe there are still those Iranians who consume and reproduce that kind of propaganda. I don't think it's majoritarian opinion in Iran, but it does exist. That conservative pro-regime uh, stands. And I think we have to acknowledge that because, again, it's a big country. Pluralism exists and there, there's a diversity of opinion uh, within that. Now, that being said, uh, this is a very instinctive Iranian regime-like response. And it's important to note, and I think many political scientists like myself would emphasize this, that this is a common tactic in all authoritarian playbooks. Uh, Whenever an authoritarian state, no matter the culture, religion, or geographic context, it can be Russia, it can be China, it can be Syria, it can be North Korea, it can be Iran, it can be Venezuela, it can be Uzbekistan, it can be Belarus. Whenever any authoritarian country Uh, undergoes a period of social unrest uh, in which it sees an exceptionally high number of protests on the street that it's not accustomed to dealing with through means other than force, the predominant response of officials will be to blame outside uh, provocateurs. Typically, it's going to traffic in the language of global conspiracy or all fingers will point to the West, typically the CIA or European meddling or some some sort of subversive intervention by outside agents, because according to the leaders that ruled these places unelected, citizens in these countries are supposed to be happy, happy citizens don't protest. And since they're unhappy, ergo, someone must have made them unhappy. That someone must be some outside saboteur. Give us a quick primer on the Iranian government. You hear stories about Supreme Leader, and you also hear stories about the president. Kind of what are the the tracks of of power in Iran? How does the government work? Who's got the hammer when it comes down to it? Here's the simplest way I can put it. Iran has no parallel in the world. 
It's not a democracy, but it's a peculiar kind of non-democratic regime, even by the standards of the Middle East, where most other non-democracies are either ruling monarchies like Saudi Arabia or Republican autocracies where a ruling party or a single strongman essentially runs the show. Iran is completely different. And this is the result of the revolution in 78, 79 and evolution, political evolution since. So the Iranian state is a political system that is almost like two parallel systems running side by side, but one is stronger than the other. The public facing system and one that is still a key part of the state is an electoral system. It is one where there is an elected parliament, the Majlis. Uh, it is one where there is an elected president. Uh, the current president, Ibrahim Raisi, was elected last year, for instance. And it's one where ordinary Iranians are supposed to cast votes. They have a particular degree of rights. They can select those who make policies for them. And it's one that is far more participatory than the monarch than the monarchical system that was replaced through revolution in the late 70s. That's the lesser of the two systems running in parallel. The other big system, again, so this is the other parallel track of the state, is is the unelected tutelary system. And by tutelary, I mean a set of institutions of religious authorities who control most public resources, who make the rules of the game, who often determine the outcomes of elections, who control the army and the police and who are not elected, and who ultimately stand as the guardians of what they see as the true revolutionary gains of the Iranian revolution more than 40 years ago. The apex of this parallel system is a term that I think Westerners are quite familiar with now, the Council of Guardians. These are just the highest religious authorities in the sort of hierarchy of Shia Islamic authority in Iran, They're not elected, at least by ordinary Iranians. They're not elected publicly. They sit on a council and they stand at the apogee of the state, lording over the system, and they essentially have veto power over everything. And from that apex, this council are secondary and tertiary institutions. It's a a whole ecosystem of appointed, not elected councils and committees and institutions all designed to control society and oversee the state. Okay, so that's the powerful track of the state. That is the backbone of the state. The public-facing track of the state is the electoral system, the one in which there is a parliament, there is a president, and it's one that where elections, if the religious authorities allow, can sometimes be quite competitive and provide for a modicum of hope. The last presidential elections back in 2021 did not allow for that. And this, it's a perfect encapsulation of how the Iranian state works. Sometimes presidential elections are hotly contested and a moderate or liberal candidate gets elected and gives hope that, for instance, there, there might be a nuclear deal with America, that there might be some relenting of social constrictions. There might be an opening of the economy. Other times, the guardians, the theocratic authorities ruling the state meddle and they disqualify candidates who they deem to be too pro-Western or too liberal or too progressive. And the only people allowed to run are the most conservative reactionary types who offer no solutions to most ordinary Iranian youths who want fresher faces in politics. That's what happened in 2021. Turnout in the 2021 elections was under 50 percent. 
which in America we wouldn't look, you know, we wouldn't think of as bizarre. In the Iranian context, though, turnout typically is in the 70s. So this was one of the lowest turnout elections in Iranian history since the revolution in the late 70s, because young Iranians believe that the hidden shadowy track of their state, the theocratic part, had meddled too much. And they didn't want to take part in the public facing part of the state where they were allowed some modicum of a voice. And that president elected through that sham exercise, Ibrahim Raisi, is the president now, which is he's the president who's ordering the mass crackdown of protests across the country. We need to take a break. We will have more with Temple University's Dr. Sean Yam right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. A Philadelphia dentist today was sentenced to 22 years in prison and fined $100,000. This was just unbelievable. You can understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. No one could believe that this highly educated, young, handsome man was this kingpin drug dealer. This is Wolves Among Us, the Larry Lavitt story. A documentary podcast from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Listen now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Sean Yam of Temple University. It seems to me, in the large picture, you talk about the public being so young, well educated, theocratic government out of step. It seems like this is untenable in the big picture. Is there a lane for somebody that can kind of straddle the two and, and understand what's happening? There are possibilities of state society dialogue. There is a pathway where officials in Iran can take something other than the kudgel of coercion, the hands and heads of protesters. The problem is that Iranian politics, like its society, is pluralistic and there are moderate voices. There are voices, including Iranian politicians and even religious authorities who went to the same seminaries as their conservative hardline colleagues on the Council of Guardians. There are religious authorities who believe that these instantiations of protests are opportunities to negotiate with society, to hear the voices of youth, and to update and to recalibrate their social and political goals to match the needs of the people that they rule not just over but for. Those voices are often drowned out by a a very vocal conservative majority among the Iranian state. These include the religious figures, these include some elected officials, and these include the bureaucrats and the managers and the the armed personnel who staff all the institutions, the security agencies, the militias, the paramilitaries, whose sole goal is to safeguard what the Iranian state calls the Islamic system that forms the, the basis of that political order. And because of that absence, because those moderate voices are seldom in a position to make choices or to make decisions to reach out to society, the current cohort of rulers and elites within the Iranian state just don't see those opportunities. I can think about the last five years, there were protests in response to water and air pollution. There were protests in response to the rising cost of living and inflation. There were protests in response to fraudulent elections. There were protests in response to social freedom. And now there's this protest. These are all protest movements that have coalesced in the last six to seven years alone. 
Oh, and against each protest, the most the Iranian state has done is to appoint a committee or to promise it will look into the grievances of protesters, but it's still cracked down and ordered those violating curfew or congregating in public spaces to go home. And it's it's important to note that lack of, I would say, tolerance to protesters on the street, it's not a uniquely Iranian or Muslim or Middle Eastern mentality. I mean, most autocrats in general react very harshly to outbursts of public dissent. I mean, you can think about Russia and Putin's response to anti-war protests after the outbreak of conflict in Ukraine, for instance. But in the Iranian case, it's important because the actions of Iranian protesters are cyclical. This is not a one-time event. There are many, many issues that ordinary Iranians believe are actionable through the language of demonstration and protests and mobilization. And the crescendo of discontent, I believe, will only continue to build until there's an explosion that's either going to be too large, too violent, or too massive that something's got to give. And the thing that's got to give in the end may indeed be the Iranian state. If this protest does not just fall into the cycle that you've talked about over the last few years, if this proves to be different, what are you looking for? In Iranian history, and indeed in in the broader theoretical framing of protests that political scientists like, like myself often use to understand when they succeed versus when they fail, one of the key determinants is longevity. They have to last a long time even when they no longer capture global headlines, even when ordinary people in the West are no longer paying attention to those protests, for instance. Longevity means are protest leaders still organizing protests even in the face of vicious assault and human rights abuses by the police or the paramilitaries? Are protests still occurring not days or weeks, but months after the initial event that sparked the initial protests? Are demonstrations happening in public spaces and are they spreading to new public spaces after old public spaces are being occupied by the state? So, for instance, when public squares get taken over by police, demonstrators move to new spaces like university campuses, like secondary schools, right, like rural areas. When those spaces become occupied, can demonstrators move to even other public spaces to continue their campaign? These are all platforms and avenues for longevity. And when we see protests live long and take on a durable character, even in the face of vicious state coercion or repression, we begin to see glimmers of hope that that protest movement is indefatigable and will be able to overcome the state. I think another smaller indicator is, are there defections within the regime or state itself? So it's a showdown. It's only building up into a larger, I think, crescendo. And I think the next few weeks in particular will determine whether this is a long-term protest movement or this will be contained with even more violence. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on Odyssey or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can hear another episode tomorrow night at 9.30 on KYW News Radio. Listen on 103.9 FM, the Odyssey app, or ask your smart speaker to play KYW News Radio. 